Welcome to Equinox, where Rob and I are striking the balance between the light and the dark. This is episode 55. My name is Joseph Darnell, and I'm joined by the doctor who's ready to take off, Robert Carter. Hello, Rob. Hey, Joe. You ready, huh? Yes. I've always wanted to co-pilot a podcast, and <laughs> I think uh, you'll make an excellent captain. I'm trying to think of a pun, and I can't. You just did three. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I wish I was good with puns. I think this is my moment. I didn't know I was meant to be a pun punator. <laughs> okay, I'm broken now. I can't do it anymore. So we were talking about in the spirit of good topics, what should we talk about this week? And bef- I, I, we, we want to chew the fat a little bit before we get to the main topic, but it occurred to me, Rob, mm-hmm. I would like to do a topic that mattered to people at large. It was a little timely. Be, and I felt like flying was one of those because this is the season that more people are picking up flying again. They're going to go out flying or this and that. So while that was on everybody's mind, I thought we should talk about it. I like this. I just had my first flight in over a year just last weekend. Sweet. I got well, where did you go? I went to uh, Arizona Christian University in Phoenix for the Creation Research Society Board of Directors meeting because I am on the board oh. of directors of the CRS. How long? Uh, I think uh, two, uh, 17, uh, seven years, I think. Mm. Very nice. Yes. We so how in, did it go? It went great. We we're in a good position. We um, just sold our, uh, our property in uh, northern Arizona and relocated southern, uh, towards the south, you know, basically downhill. So low, el- low, el- low elevation. Phoenix is very hot. It's not up in the air. And the uh, university gave us some sweet digs. We probably spent $150,000 renovating. We, as in the society, did. And we've got a really nice office and laboratory space. I mean, it's really beautiful. Nice. Yeah. And have I, you done any work there, or are you just on the board? Um, I haven't done any work there, but it is certainly set up for work. There's two main projects, research projects, that they're pursuing. One is called iDino, where they are looking at um, uh, soft tissue and dinosaur bones. And now Brian Thomas at ICR just got his PhD, actually, in soft tissue and dinosaur bones. And he's been working with uh, Kevin Anderson, who's the uh, uh, the COO and laboratory manager there. And there's another project. So basically, the lab's split in half. And they're going to dedicate each half to one project. The other project is called eKinds. And they're trying to do genetic analyses to determine God's created divisions. Mm. Like, are dogs and cats different? Or are they all carnivores? Oh, uh, yeah. I see yeah. What you mean. Panda bears and black bears, or panda bears were black bears? You know, those sorts of questions are being asked. You know, we were just uh, talking about bears on another talk show that I did for the ministry. I think it was with you last week or the week before. Then I was listening to another podcaster who's a photographer, and he mentioned that polar bears' fur is not technically white, it is transparent. But because of the thickness of the fur and the light hitting it, the reflections of the environment, things like that, casting shadow, it has the appearance of being white. I thought that was fascinating. Think of a sand grain. Quartz is clear, but beaches are not clear. They're white. So is that pretty much true of all sand? They're all clear? No. Because I just assumed that some of them would be like murky or cloudy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's all sorts of impurities that can happen, but a pure white sand is really pure quartz and it's white because the light just bounces around randomly in there. It doesn't pass through. It hits, there's too many little angles and things to refract off of. Hmm. Is ordinary quartz harder than ordinary glass? 
is there sort of a mm. ratio? Is quartz typically more durable because it's a natural mm. solid? Mm-mm-mm-mm. I cannot answer that question. Way to go, Joe. You stumped me. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. I got to ring a bell. There's got to be like sort of a scale of like, or, you know, like generic crystal quartz is, you know, tougher than average glass, but gorilla glass is yeah. 10 times tougher than quartz. There are so many different types of glass that I don't actually know. And I imagine there are several different types of quartz also. Mm. So beats me. I don't know what the Mohs hardness scale is for quartz versus glass. Okay. Well, welcome back to Georgia. How was your flight? It was okay. But, you know, flying to Arizona, they're on California time. There's a three-hour time difference. So the worst part about going west is you wake up four hours before breakfast. <laughs> that is pretty tough. That's it's hard, man. Tough. Well, by then, you know, breakfast is technically lunch. Yeah, so. pretty much. So, you know, I got up and had a uh, about 3.30 in the morning there and had a snack bar and drink of water and then waited for sunrise and then went outside for a little while and then twiddled my thumbs working on stuff and then the meeting started. Mm. You know, I'm I'm very thankful I don't have to travel much for my job, but I have enjoyed flying every time I did it. So if my job eventually required it, I would not be opposed to that. There was this one time that a producer wanted my brother and I, when we were filmmakers together, to fly out to the Middle East because they thought they had found a very important archaeological discovery and they wanted to chronicle it. They wanted a documentary. And we started looking at what it would entail and what kind of equipment we would need. We may be facing all kinds of weather and need just an incredible amount of battery power supply. We came really close to doing it. They eventually postponed it because at the time in the Middle East, it was not safe. But uh, I thought about that and counted the cost. And I was like, you know, if I do this, this will be the trip of a lifetime. Sure, I, I think I, I'd be up for it. it, well, it could can still you tell happen. me what country it was in? It was going to be in um, the area of Ararat. All right, cool. The mountains of Ararat, if anybody knows what that's about. I love traveling. Just It's just fascinating. Uh, the, the thing is, the, the biggest pet peeve I have right now is everyone has devices and the screens on the back of seats. If your window is open, the person next to you will always ask you to close your window. And I like looking out the window and looking for like meandering rivers and mountains and, you know, whatever else I can see out there. I love staring out the window. Yes. But I the only time I close the window is overnight. During the day, it's got to be open. Why at night? If the if the moon is, you know, just bright enough or something like that and people are trying to sleep and it's, oh, it's just distracting. Nonsense. Nonsense. <laughs> do, you, do you sleep with the windows or the blinds and the curtains drawn? Like What, at know, home? Do you? Yeah. Well, my bedroom windows looking at trees and there aren't any uh, street lights so yeah my, my blinds are open oh, i keep the window so nice and clean so i'm looking at trees no i can't do that i gotta draw all the blinds i gotta close the curtains shut the door batten down the hatches oh, no, i know i make sure it's dark but i don't i don't i would love to just sleep outside but i'm not you know man i'm not man enough to do that anymore yeah it's unsettling to me you know what we have around here are these birds and i don't understand why dude I'd never found this at any other place I lived in Georgia. There are birds all over the place that are chirping at six o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and they're, they're just going to town, flocks of them. And I, I got my yeah. s- 
sleep noise fan machine just loud enough to drown out the birds. And I don't ever notice them unless I get up to use the restroom. But well, I get up and I'm like, what are they doing out I, there? They're insane. I, I would be persuaded that the reason you hear the birds is that you're already waking up. Mm. That they wouldn't is wake you up. Is the sense of hearing sleep. more acute at the time? No, it's just it's just time to get up, so you're hearing things. Oh, okay. When you're asleep, yeah, you'd be dead sense. to the world. You wouldn't notice any birds chirping. I think. Hmm. I believe. I'm not you. I don't know. But see, I, I feel... My internal clock does funny things. It could have been that. But I sleep like someone hit me with a brick. I, I mean, used to. I went, miss those days. Well, I still do. I don't bounce out of bed like I used to when I was younger. I slowly wake up. But man, when it's time to go to sleep, wham, I'm done. Are you okay sleeping on while you travel, using a hotel or wherever you happen to find yourself? Uh, no, not usually. That's harder for me too. Yeah, well, especially because usually I get to a hotel after doing an evening event and my adrenaline's all like peaked and crashing and I'm hungry and I'm stressed and sleeping is not easy at that point. Mm-hmm. And I don't yeah. sleep on airplanes. And oh. I don't know why. I have flown across the ocean. Let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight times maybe, times two, and have never slept a wink. Wow. Yeah, I can sleep on a plane. Not it's not easy, but I can do it. Can't do it. And so I, I gave up. See, now they got the little little video uh, players in the back of the seats. So they turn off the light. I watch three movies. They turn a light on. I have breakfast. <laughs> That's my routine yep. for flying across the ocean. <laughs> do, do you ever find you can do that in the rest of your life? You can just stay up all night every now and then to do something you're really eager to do and you don't have the time to squeeze it in, but you can just do, pull an all-nighter and do it and then get back to life and have another night's sleep the next day. I was never really able to pull all-nighters. I pulled two of them in college. Uh, one of them was homecoming. We were building a, a display out front of the house and just took all night. And the other time was I was up late studying for a test and I had signed up for the early ecology lab where I went in the lab and turned the lights on at, at five o'clock in the morning mm. and I was wrapping up studying at two and I'm like, I'm not going to go to sleep for three hours. So I just stayed up. Nice. But it's it. I, I've done it just a couple of times and I found it so hard because it seems like those hours between two and six are the slowest hours of the clock. It is Yes, painful. but the secret is to not go to sleep. Go to sleep at bedtime the next night to stay up. Yeah. That's what I do when I travel. I, I basically, I'm up for 36 hours and I go to sleep. I get reset pretty quickly that way. I remember in a, another job I started to get training for when I was 22 that had to do with transport. And they were explaining, you know, if you have to stay up over 24 hours, you know, here's how you do it. And one of the questions I asked him was, how do you do it? You know, like, when do, does it get easier? Does your body go through a cycle? What happens? And they said, yeah, you know, when the sun comes up, it just kind of cues you in, you know, like, hey. Now you you have permission to be awake. Yes. So it's a little bit easier. Yeah. But then when the sun sets at 6 p.m. in Australia, you have to stay awake till at least 8 or 9. And that is killer. After being up for 36 hours, you're like, I just got to go to sleep. But you cannot go to sleep at 6 o'clock in the evening. That'll ruin Oof. you. You have to stay awake at least close to their bedtime or you're toast. So do you not think that there is such a thing as sleep debt that you can catch up on? Is that a myth? Um, yes, it's a myth. Because if you... Yeah. Okay. Because if you get if you finally get that normal eight hours in Australia, you'll be okay. No, see, you've had children. You understand that that what children <laughs> teach you that sleep is irrelevant. I mean, you don't really need as much as you think you need. Anyway, it's true. 
<laughs> hey, after, after our last week's conversation about radiation, I mean, literally, yeah. either that night or the next morning, I ran into an article about Chernobyl, and it's oh. <laughs> really, really interesting. Yeah, touch on it. There was this thing called the elephant's foot, which was basically a blob of melted molten slag that had sunk through different basement levels and finally came to rest like on the last basement level. Have gone through that, it would have gotten into the water table. But the elephant's wow. foot was rock hard. Oh, and it's no wow. longer rock hard. What? It's like on its own. It it it's like the consistency of a sandcastle. Wow. It has decomposed. The metal that cooled into a, this weird metal that no one had ever seen before. They didn't know these metals would mix like that. This alloy has decomposed. It's literally crumbling. Elephantium. <laughs> That'd be funny. <laughs> but there's something else. The reason I, I got on that story was that they're noticing um, radiation spikes in a place where they can't get to. This doesn't have to do with the elephant's foot? No, it, it might be. Okay. It's, it's in the same vicinity because it's the same reactor that melted down, but it's a, an inaccessible chamber and they're getting radiation spikes as if all of a sudden too much nuclear fission is happening, like happens an atomic bomb sort of happening, you know? They don't think it's going to blow up, but it is burning fast. Ooh. It's a physical mystery. So they're thinking about tunneling and getting into that chamber through a wall or something like that and well that's not really smart but they might try something like that have we ever talked about the Oklo nuclear reactor the natural reactor i don't think so well there is a, a place in africa where they've been mining and they're they're looking at this the stuff coming up and they're like wait a minute these are fission products what they figured out is that there was so much uranium way 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 down deep that it went critical really it was concentrated so enough to uranium like underground yeah just there, a deposit. So it, it, it's not something that has to be man-made. True, true. Well, well, as, as in a, a nuclear reaction, it does not have to be man-made. But it's awfully hard to get it in nature, and everyone was totally surprised. Wild. That I love hearing that there are still things yet to be discovered about planet Earth. Tons of things we still have to discover about planet Earth. Oh, that sounds like a topic unto itself. Okay, things that still yeah, have to like, be discovered. Yeah, things <laughs> that we have to figure out. I like that. Yeah, like climate change. Um, yeah, okay. All right, so you ready to move on to flight? Yeah, man, let's do it. Soaring through the air with the greatest of ease. Rob, how did man ever figure out flight? Well, this is a long story. Speaking of which, is it true that the Wright brothers were the first to make human flight? Powered flight, yes. But there exactly. is see that's the thing is I think that it's easy to forget that flight did technically exist before it. Sorta, yes. But there is a guy who claims to have predated the Wright brothers by several years. Hmm. And witnesses they said, Oh yes, we saw this thing fly. I think it was in Connecticut. But then historians are like, Well, we don't know. I don't know. But I think the Encyclopedia Britannica listed him as the first flight. So there's a question about the Wright brothers' priority. But they definitely were the first ones who got known about it and successfully popularized it. And I don't think the other guy actually did fly, but, you know, who knows? He may have. Too bad he didn't have proof. Yep, too bad. Yep, yep, yep. Do you know? That, well, he did. He had, he had eyewitnesses, mm. which got contradicted. Right. <laughs> Do you know the ancient Greek story of Icarus and Daedalus? It rings a bell, but uh, refresh my memory. Well, I think they were like trapped in a castle or something. And either Icarus or them, they both, they built wings made of wax and bird feathers. See, because bird feathers, I guess, are magical or something. And they, they 
put their arms in these wings and they flew away. Mm. For a long way, they flew a long time, but Daedalus flew too high, got close to the sun, and his wings melted and he plummeted to his death. Of course. Poor Daedalus. There's so many things wrong about physics and science in the story. It's unbelievable. The sun, of course, <laughs> does not get any hotter when you go higher because the sun's really far away. Uh, yeah. And even if it was close, at air temperature and et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, th- that story's messed up. But plus, hmm. why? And I'll just tell you humans cannot flap and fly. Why? I remember hearing you talk about this before, about the bone structure and the muscular structure yes, of yes. birds, and it's fascinating. Yes. But oh, it's, yeah, oh, you ought to tell we the We could audience. do another one, just birds, bird engineering, the engineering of a bird. Okay, that's a, that's, that'd be a great one. That'd be a great episode in the future. Good call. But humans are not birds. We are dense. Our bones are solid. We don't have giant breast muscles. We <laughs> don't have a keel on our sternum. Like you, a keel? You, you've eaten chicken, right? And turkey? Yes. What, the breast meat, there's a thing that separates the two parts of breast meat. It's a bone that sticks up off the sternum. Oh, okay. What that does is it makes a, it makes a triangle. It allows the, uh, uh, a giant attachment point for the breast muscles so they can pull harder without ripping off the, the bone attachment. Yeah, okay. Well, we don't have that. Right. We are, we are we're engineered to run. We run better than any animal, period. Wow. No animal can run a marathon. Interesting. Wow. They could do a lot of sprints. They can sprint. Even the fastest, huh? But a human can run down any animal given enough time. If we just keep running, keep running, keep running, keep running. Because most animals don't sweat. We have great temperature, thermal regulation. But that's another story for another day. Right. We're talking about flying. Icarus and Daedalus is an impossible story. There are other mythologies, you know, Alexander the Great getting four griffins and the griffins fly him around the kingdom as he's sitting on his throne, etc. You know, things like this. Just, yeah, no, didn't happen, can't happen. Well, speaking of both of those examples, they do sound like fantasy or mythology. Whereas if you think about the accounts of a flood and Noah's Ark-like story, they read a little bit more like history, even if they're different in details from different cultures. So is there anything like that that resembles human flight from a bygone time where they figured out how to make a contraption, even if it wasn't, even if it was like a mechanized paper airplane? Does such a thing exist somewhere 2,000 years ago? No. Hmm. Uh, Dennis Swift, who's done a lot of study on the uh, the strange rocks from South America, the Ica stones that some people claim have some dinosaur carvings on them. Yeah, uh, in his book, some I never figured out why, but he starts talking about the Incas. I think it was the Incas and their ability to build hang gliders and fly down from mountain temples. And I just have such a hard time believing it because there's no archaeological or technological evidence that this ever actually happened. Because oh, that's just too bad. even if you could create a cloth that was light enough and strong enough, that doesn't mean you have an airframe. Right. And an airframe is critical. I mean, Leonardo da Vinci, 1485, he draws this thing he called the ornithopter. It looks like a bat. And it was for a person. And it really wouldn't have flown, but it was the first real, sort of like a bat-like hang glider sort of thing. And that was brilliant. I mean, he knew, he knew where it was going 500 years before it happened, 400 years before it happened. And now I got to ask, I have heard this example. So is there any particular reason why they didn't attempt to 
actually make it and take it out for a flight? Do you know if there's a historical explanation? Um, he was studying the concept. He did a whole bunch of drawings of all sorts of different flying things, like a couple hundred drawings. He was really thinking through the process. He probably realized that he did not have the materials because material science had to advance before we could have an airplane. Oh, that's a great point. There's no way around okay. that. You just, you just didn't have it. And as far as powered flight goes, human muscles are not strong enough. So a glider, sure, gliders are possible, um, but they, they took a long time to put two and two together before they figured out, okay, here's how we can actually make it light enough and strong enough and fly it. And the first glider was, um, oh, 18, George Cayley wrote, wrote a bunch of stuff, textbooks and things like in the early 1800s. I think he built the first glider that carried a person, but it only carried a little boy. And no one knows who that boy was. He was in some village and he picked a boy from the village. And I think that was the only flight ever of that glider. And it was decades until anyone else glid, glided, glid, glided, whatever. Glit. Glit. <laughs> <laughs> but take a guess when the hot air balloon was invented. Oh, it had to be in the 19th century, right? Nope. Hmm. Let me guess. So if I had to reach back further than the 19th century, I would say Maybe there was a story I heard and I've forgotten about how in medieval times there was somebody like a really innovative monk who had a balloon. But how would he have gotten the helium? So that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so I'm back to the 19th century. I'm at a loss here. Well, 18th century. Really? 1783. Right after the American Revolution. A couple of French guys using silk and a rather heavy gondola and a fire, they, they sent a couple animals up in the air. And then a little while later, they took a couple of people up in the air. It was the uh, Montgolfier brothers. That's just amazing and scary. And I would love to have been there. I don't think I would have gone up in one. Today, I would definitely go up in a hot air balloon. But back then, uh, your, your chance of dying would have been rather high. So oh, I'm sure. Too, yeah, too risky yeah. for me. Hey, did you see the um, Amazon movie, The Aeronauts? I started to watch it, and it was really interesting, so I paused it to finish it with my wife, and I plumb forgot about it. Oh, you need to finish it. It was, it was, I knew nothing about it. I just literally hit, oh, aeronauts, hit click. And, and I don't know how historical it is. I don't know how revisionist it is. But it's like, this is really cool. <laughs> and a little ridiculous in a couple of places. Okay, but, you know, they have to have the angst and the, the drama. But um, the whole idea was, was neat. So, hot air balloons are heavier than air, and they float but that's not flying. Even oh. blimps, blimps that come from the 1800s and later on, that's not flying. That's floating. Okay. See, to me, I just took it for granted that floating is flying. No, no, no. This is, flying is, if you stop moving forward, you crash to your death. <laughs> <laughs> that's flying. Uh, okay, that's kind of true. <laughs> but the whole dirigible concept uh, you know, Graf Zeppelin, and, and I, I want to do a tour of Europe in a Zeppelin. I can't wait. I mean, I keep hearing that they're working on these 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 um floating balloon designs, like an old old Zeppelin sort of thing. And I just want so bad to do like a week tour of Europe, floating around in the air, looking down. That'd be the coolest thing. But um, hasn't happened yet in my lifetime. Hmm. All right. So we have gliders, which are being invented in the 1800s, that work. We have dirigibles or zeppelins or blimps, and they work. But the airplane, the airplane was developed on paper a long time before anyone flew. Leonardo, he, he invented a 
glider. Long time before anyone built a glider. But airplanes, early 1800s, 1890s, uh, 1900s, late 1900s. So this guy in 1894, his name was Chanute. He wrote, literally, he compiled everything that was known about flying. It was all theoretical. Hmm. A couple of examples of people who tried and died or crashed, but it was all theoretical. But the Wright brothers used his work. Interesting. They also used a, a book by Otto Lilienthal, who built the first long-distance glider to carry a full-size man in 1891. That thing had to not just glide, you had to steer it. And I think the first flight, he only broke one leg. <laughs> <laughs> only one leg. <laughs> only one. <laughs> So sorry. Wow. <clears throat> I'm supposed to laugh hysterically or maniacally. And see, and see, that's when most people would say, yeah, this can't be done without <laughs> physical injury and mayhem and yeah. <laughs> premature death. Yeah, but the, the way that worked, he's like, he's sort of like hanging from the glider, like his waist is at glider level and his legs are dangling below it. So I guess the thought was when you get to the end, you can like, like run real fast and stop yourself. But yeah, I don't think it's that easy. Anyway, he only broke one leg. That's 1891. 1894, Chanute writes his book. Here comes 1900. There are a lot of people at this time trying to build an airplane. Lots of people. The Wright brothers were just two guys out of a huge crop of people across the world. One guy who got really close was named Samuel Langley. You've heard that name, Langley. Yes. In like CIA movies and FBI movies. and That's Lang- right. Yeah, Langley Air Force Base is named after Langley, who never flew a plane. <laughs> wow. But he, he did something that got the government to give him a, like tens of thousands of dollars in, in research money. And it all went kaput. It was a waste. He never actually built a working plane. But this guy in 1891 built a, a glider and put a steam engine on it. And it flew for three quarters of a mile with no person on it. But a steam engine plane, and it went almost a mile. What? Incredible. What? Yes. Oh, man. Well, so the USA gave him, I mean, I think like $50,000 or something like that, a huge princely sum back in the day to build a real full-size plane. But he failed. There's big problems in scaling up from a model to the real thing. You can't just the same reason why you can't have a 20-foot tall person. It doesn't work like that. You can't just scale a person up forever. You'll break. Things go wrong. The engineering of a person for six foot is not the same as the engineering of a person who would be 20 feet. And the same thing with planes. You can't just make them bigger in all dimensions. And he didn't have the control down correctly. Because in order to fly a plane, you have to control three different axes. Up and down, left and right, and twisting left to right. Up and down, it's called the pitch, right? The pitch of the nose. Uh, rolling is side to side, but you can also pivot. Like you can be flying horizontally and point your nose to the right or to the left. That's called yaw. So you have a, let's see, a front to back turn. You have a left to right turn and a side to side turn. The three different ways. You have to control all three of those things or you crash and burn. And that's what all these people are, are struggling with. Trying to control a plane is really hard. It wasn't until after the Wright brothers that someone figured out you could use a stick to control the pitch and the roll. And that stick is Hmm. still used in planes today. Hmm. Way cool. Totally, totally cool. Yeah, totally. Okay, but the Wright brothers, right? Everyone knows they were were, um, bicycle makers. The right guys at the right time. Uh, Yeah, Yeah, that's right. And smart. But also, they were methodical and they didn't take risks. 
Yeah, they took risks, but not. They planned everything out. They tested everything. They built their own wind tunnel. No one had ever thought of doing that before. And they tested all their designs in a wind tunnel. That set a precedence for the next, now we're up to 120 years of aviation stuff. And we still use wind tunnels. Brilliant. And so they flew their (laughs) things. They flew in a wind tunnel without a person. But they're trying all these different ways of controlling things. But they did something crazy. They knew that a wing gave lift. We'll talk about lift in a little while. But they knew that wings produce lift. And they also knew that different shape wings produce different amounts of lift. So if you want to turn left, if you want to roll your plane, all you got to do is change the shape of the wing. (laughs) (laughs) Today we have these things called flaps that are on the wings that go up and down independently. So that's how you get your plane to roll. (laughs) But oh no, they changed the shape. They flexed the wing to change that the- is that is impressive if i may <laughs> say so are you crazy yeah but, but looking at birds birds do that well oh, i mean if birds do it the yeah, wright brothers sure. were on you know sure. that train of thought so 1903 the wright brothers leave ohio and they go to kitty hawk north carolina what a cool name now we we're talking in the hallway today about why they went to kitty hawk the reason they went is because they needed steady winds they needed to practice they needed a nice breeze that's blowing in one direction. See, if I, if I was them, I would have built a plane where you could tie it, like put a rope 100 feet out and put a stake in and let the wind blow and lift your plane up and fly while you're tied down. But they didn't do that. But that's what I would have done if I could have. Makes but sense. They needed, they needed good winds, open fields. And Kitty Hawk, I don't know why there, but they picked that place and they did it. First flight was 120 feet. Whoop de doo. <laughs> hey, that's way more than we had ever done before. <laughs> that's right. That's right. But that plane weighed 605 pounds. Oh. That's part of the problem, eh? You know, hot air balloons, they don't weigh anything, right? Dirigibles, blimps, they don't weigh anything in the air. But the plane was 605 pounds. And the coolest thing, I think the best thing about their story, they're looking for an engine. And they knew because other people had already written about power-to-weight ratios, they needed a high-power, lightweight engine, and it didn't exist. So they made their own. They made a gasoline engine that didn't exist. They built the thing. What? Hey, Joe, if I said, hey, uh, you need to build a new engine for your car. (laughs) Go ahead, man. Good luck. Yeah, sure. Right. That's right. But they had one of the strongest engines ever made, 12 horsepower. And it was the lightest horsepower to weight engine ever made. And that was one of their secrets. So flexing the wings, uh, controlling pitch, roll, and yaw, and a light engine gave them all the things that they needed. Now, when you say a light engine, that really sounds like the thing that goes to warp speed on the Millennium Falcon. You mean oh, it's that's funny. very yeah. light in weight. Yeah, I don't okay. think that would have been appropriate for the uh, Flyer one. Anyway, a lightweight engine, we shall say. They made four flights on that day. The second one was like 39 seconds long. Mm-hmm. But each one of them ended in a crash. Oh. They're only flying 10 and every feet time off. they probably died a little inside, but also <laughs> felt reborn. Like, <laughs> right. Let's we do learned, it again. We the plane, it's good. it didn't die. But what they were flying really close to the ground. Have you? Okay, this is something really cool. And every time I fly, I notice it. It's called ground effect. The ground effect. When the plane is coming in for a landing, the, the wings are, are um, angled upward. The angle of attack is, is high. 
and his pen kind of like coming down and there's a bunch of air being pushed underneath the wing. When the wing gets close enough to the ground, the air hits the ground and it cushions the plane. The plane literally, boop, you can feel it. You can look out the window and huh, you can feel yeah. the cushion of air under the wings as it gets trapped between the wing and the ground. It's called ground effect. There was a massive Soviet plane that was designed to fly across like the Black Sea or the Caspian Sea, maybe even Aral Sea, I don't remember which one it was, but it never got up in the air. It was just huge and it flew on ground effect the whole way. Crazy. Anyway, they're only 10 feet over the ground. And if anything went wrong, they had no time to correct it. Hence, they hit the ground four times. Well, they, they said, yeah, we did it. So they took their plane apart. They went back to Ohio and it was a couple of years before they flew again. And then... It was a couple of years before they flew again again in 1905. Now, the reason I'm focusing on the 1905 was because six years later, the first military use of an airplane was going to happen. Literally, the first bombing run in an airplane was 1911. Wow. That didn't take any time at all, really. None at all. So, in 1905, Wilbur flew for 39 minutes and he went 24 miles that's over 60 miles an hour. He just made circles around a field for 24 miles until he ran out of gas. And then he safely landed his plane. Wow. So uh, I don't know if I've heard anyone bring this up before. Were the Wright brothers in it for fame, glory, recognition, history? Or would you say, was it because they had the, the inventor's motivation and spirit? Was it they wanted to become filthy rich, you know, or was it all the above? You know, did they see this as a business? What was going through their head? I can't tell you. That's an interesting question. I imagine that they were just doing what was in front of them to do. And it was amazing and fun. And they just had this maniacal passion. And so they just ran with it. Now, they did get famous and they did start businesses afterwards. Wilbur is not going to live very long. He's going to die in a plane crash in 1912. Uh, Orville go on and, and start a business and be, I guess he made money. I'm not sure what happened to his business, but he got eclipsed by a lot of other people because once they did it, everyone else figured it out and no one built a plane like the right flyer again. It was just crazy. But after that flight in 1905, they took the plane apart because they didn't want other people to see it and steal their ideas. And they wouldn't fly for another three years. I mean, it's like, you know, in exponential growth and math, where it, the curve just curves upwards really quickly. Yeah. But at the beginning, it's like, it's not growing. Like my bank account. Or the old, um, you know, the guy who the, the king said, what can I give to you? He goes, oh, king, just put a penny on, a, on the first square of a chessboard, and then two pennies on the second square, and four pennies on the third square, and eight pennies on, on the next square, until the chessboard is filled up. And of course, that's more money than's ever been made in the world by the time you get to the 64th square. That's, exponential growth is like that. And even though there's almost no flying happening in those early years, it's about to explode. And literally, 1911, the first military use of observation and bombing. I think it was the Turks fighting in Libya. It wasn't the Germans or the French or the English. And soon after that, the Bulgarians in a war, they used a plane. Bulgaria? <laughs> yeah, Bulgaria was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire or close to it. I mean, they weren't backwards people they spoke a bulgarian language is kind of strange but they were right there in the european sphere we don't know much about bulgaria because it disappeared behind the iron curtain for 50 years or so 
and became an incredibly impoverished nation. But the Bulgarians, I mean, they were, they were, they were right up there with the other nations of the world, developing things and doing crazy things like, you know, shooting people from airplanes and dropping hand grenades in the trenches and things like that. That's kind of cool. Right. I love the story of Eddie Rickenbacker and the Red Baron. Fighting the Flying Circus was a, was a, a great book by Eddie Rickenbacker. He's just a World War I ace. The Red Baron was, was an ace also. Now, an ace is a person who shoots down five other planes. But does the word ace have any, is that something to do with cards? Is that a term related to the number five? I wonder, I wonder about that. It's curious. I, I don't know. But the, the first ace was also the first ace who got killed while flying. <laughs> <laughs> Someone else shot him down. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Sorry. <clears throat> Sorry. Shouldn't laugh like that. Uh, the Red Baron got shot down also. In fact, when I lived in Miami... Every day I had to drive out to Virginia Key to the University of Miami to the, the Rosenstiel School. It was on an island. I didn't go to the main campus downtown. But driving out to Virginia Key, I had to drive over the Rickenbacker Causeway. Mm. And almost no one knew what that was. Named it Freddy Rickenbacker, the World War I flying ace. Just a cool wow. guy. Just a really, really fascinating story. When I was a kid, I used to eat the Red Baron pizza. It was my favorite. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Oh, when I was a kid um, on the Commodore 64, what was that game? Oh, yeah. Some of the first games were yeah. flight simulation. Oh, there was a, it was, yeah, they had flight simulators, but this one was a, um, I remember this, the music too, but you're in a biplane and you're, you're flying at like a 45 degree angle to the upper right of your screen. And you could tell by your shadow how high up in the air you were. And you flew left and right and you bombed things and you shot things. And oh, what was that game? That was fun. I played a lot of that. Anyway, so in 1915, Junkers, Junkers made the first metal airframe oh like the skeletal structure inside of the wings and and the fuselage made of metal instead of wood oh brilliant that changed everything can't believe it took it that long well i don't know wright brothers didn't fly around successfully until 1905 and that's only 10 years later it's true i mean you remember you remember 1911 no i wasn't there sorry sorry Sorry. (laughs) do you remember 2011 Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> 10 years ago. Uh, imagine if the airplane was invented then. Yeah, okay. It's almost nothing has happened. It's a vague rumor. You've never seen one. Mm-hmm. You might have heard that someone used them to bomb. And just a couple years later, 1914, World War I starts. And by the end of the war, three or four years later, masses of planes are tangling in the clouds. Hundreds of planes of different types and different different designations and they had bombers and they had fighters and they had observation planes <sighs> and they had um someone finally took a machine gun so instead of the co-pilot trying to shoot people with a pistol as they flew past them he put the machine gun on the front of the plane and then someone had the bright idea to synchronize it so it shot between the propeller oh that is so cool so since the had this thing called uh, the propeller and it was all mechanical. They just mechanically connected it to the machine gun. So pop, 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 pop in between the propeller blades because you don't want to shoot your propeller off while you're flying. Now, a lot of the early uh, planes, they, the, the pilots in the war did not fly with parachutes. It was unlucky or uncomfortable or dangerous to have a parachute, you know, all the stupid things. Later on, of course, uh, they said, you know, falling to my death is no fun. But the worst thing, the thing that they were really scared of is getting burned to death while you're flying. And so a lot of times the plane would catch fire, the pilot would just climb out and jump. Oh, wow. Because it'd be better splat on the ground and to burn to death slowly. Sure. This raises a huge question. 
Who invented the parachute? Well, you know, Google answers everything, right? Oh, yeah. Who invented the parachute? Uh, the first parachute jump was by André Jacques Garnier or something like that. It doesn't tell me over Paris. Paris does all that stuff. Leonardo da Vinci is on the list. No. Let's see. Some guy named Lenormand fashioned a parachute from two umbrellas and jumped from a tree. <laughs> he doesn't count. Garnerin is the first man to actually design a real parachute. Um, looking for, it looks like 1797. Really? Yep. Whoa. He went up 3,200 feet in a hot air balloon and jumped. Not bad. But he didn't have the vent. He didn't have the little hole at the top that parachutes have. And so he oscillated wildly on his way down. Oh. And landed a half a mile away from where the balloon took off. Wow, 1797. The dude jumped out of a plane 3,000 feet. Okay, hey, I just learned something cool. Incredible. It never occurred to me that parachutes would have predated planes but it makes sense now and because what i was expecting you to say was well there was mr parachute and he invented <laughs> parachute and because they were trying to save lives from you know planes and it was like that makes total sense i did not expect it to be before the plane either i i figured it would have been 1900s i had no idea it was the 1700s hmm. that's cool that is people are nuts man nuts crazy people lazy genius right there the metal airframe is necessary for attaching things like jet engines. Even in World War II, we were still building some planes with mostly wooden parts. That's because it just saved money, and especially toward the end of the war, Germany and, and things like that. I mean, they, they're trying to save money by not using a lot of metal. And a lot of wood went into airplanes, even, even late then. The first fighter jet was made in 1945 in Germany. Now, we knew about jet engines since the 1930s, and in America and other places were experimenting with jet engines, but the first functional fighter jet was in 1945, and the Americans saw it right, you know, after all this fighting, 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 and were about to invade Germany, and this plane making this weird noise flies down the river that separated Germany from France, and that was the first time anyone had seen this in action. Incredible. So was the jet engine the kind that has the jet engine on the tail or also on the wings? Like, is that an option? I'm assuming it's either way. Uh, I've seen so many pictures recently of early jet planes. One of them had a really weird one sticking way off the back. That might have been uh, a German design also, but it wasn't a fighter. Okay. I think the fighter had it on the wings. I think it had two on each one on each wing. Don't quote me on that. I've just seen too many recently to, to remember which one was which. Okay. So America after the war is like, oh man, we need fighter jets too and fighter and jet bombers. So we made a jet bomber and it worked great. And we used it in Korea. In Korea was the first time that a jet bomber was shot down by a fighter jet. And all of a sudden the area of jet, oh, we need to do a show on, on the jet engine. Oh, oh yeah. Okay. Because then we can talk about the ramjet. And the regular jet. And okay. Yeah. All right. Fantastic. I love jet engines. They're really cool. Anyway, I don't know how far to go. And we could go in all sorts of different directions. There's one more thing we need to talk about. Planes. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll come back to that then. Okay. Let the audience join us for this little pause break. So all right. uh, question, Rob, do you feel like you should turn this into a two-parter? Do you feel like you want to just make it another episode, another week in the future? where you go into more recent history? What do you I, think? I think we can do other episodes on airplanes, airplane design, uh, airplane history, airplane engineering, 
as as we see fit. Awesome. I just wanted to basically lay out what I just laid out, which is a real simple history of how we actually got up in the air. Yeah. But there's one more thing to talk about, and I want to end the discussion of the airplane with a curveball that if people think they know how planes fly, I'm going to tell them that they're wrong. Okay. All right. Can I take a wild guess? Yeah. I'm thinking about how when I am in my car going down the interstate and I roll down the window and I stick my hand out and make it flat. Yes. If I tilt the front up, it goes up. And if I tilt it down, it goes down. So I, I want to say that wings are slicing through the air and the uplift cannot be helped because the wind is going underneath the wing. Is that like a rudimentary, you know, layman's terms way of describing what it's really doing or what it's not actually doing? You're talking about one aspect of a wing, which is called the angle of attack. Okay. So that's not the key to flight. Well, no, no, no. That is, that is huge. The angle of attack is absolutely critical. It's not an efficient way to fly. But if you strap a big enough engine onto it, you can use a plank for a wing. It doesn't have to be wing-shaped. It doesn't have to be curved on the top. You have a complete, like, like stunt planes. They, their wing is shaped the same on the top and the bottom. They're not very stable on purpose. They want to be able to do all sorts of tricks and things and flip and, and, and roll and stuff like that. But you don't need a wing shape to fly. You could have completely flat wings. As long as you have a powerful enough engine and you angle the wing up, you'll go up or angle it down and you'll go down. That's the angle of attack. But why is a wing shape? What, what is that, that, yeah, that wing shape? It's flat on the bottom and curved on the top and thicker at the front and thinner at the back. I, I would have just assumed that it was curved on the bottom as well. No, 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 no. In fact, um, when I was a kid, we, my, my friend uh, uh, Brendan and I, we, we made boomerangs a lot. So several times. And to make a boomerang is really easy. You take a piece of wood, like a plywood, you cut it in boomerang shape, and then you sand down the top edges only. You leave the bottom flat and the bottom edge at 90 degrees and the top, you sand them down to curve the top of it. I just thought manufacturers were lazy with boomerangs. I've seen that design before myself and it never occurred to me that that was for a reason. And when you throw it, you have to throw it with a curvy side on the top and the flat side on the bottom or it'll crash. Okay. All right. Hey, oh, something hey, every day. let me describe how a boomerang flies. Yeah, perfect. Oh, by the way, when was the boomerang invented? I don't know. It was invented by Australian Aborigines, I've heard. But they had a non-returning boomerang and a returning boomerang. So I'm not sure. So quick Google and uh, my Google must not be as reliable as yours because it says it was invented 25 to 50,000 years ago. Yeah, yeah. That's what I thought I was going to say. Anyway, here's how boomerang works. In Poland. In what? In Poland. Poland? Oh, no, 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 no. My bad. It says that the oldest boomerang was discovered in Poland. Okay. I, that, that surprises me. Maybe other people just invented it because it's, it kind of makes sense. You throw a stick, hey, it's curved. Wow, let's play around with it some more. But basically, you take this V-shaped wing that's curved on the top and flat on the bottom. And when you throw it, you, you spin it. When I realized how it works is when I notice it. And now I notice it all the time. Yeah. This thing is flying through the air. The top is generating lift and is rotating. But if you've ever taken a gyroscope that's spinning and you knock it, it always moves at 90 degrees to the direction that you knocked it. That's just one of the laws of science. Well, okay. this thing is trying to lift, but it's spinning, and it's, you throw it at an angle, and so gravity's pulling it down, and the wing that's moving forward is moving faster than the wing that's moving backwards as it's spinning. Oh, 
Okay. So it gets more lift on the outside and less lift on the inside, and it it rotates up. But it can't rotate up because it's curving because it's spinning. So it 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 rotates the other direction and turns around and comes back at you. But if you look at a boomerang, the moment it turns, it is literally the bottom wing is not moving. It's moving. It's at, when you throw it, it slows down. It doesn't fly forward as fast. And as it's slowing down, eventually it reaches a point where the bottom wingtip is moving backwards at the same rate as the boomerang is moving forward. And at that point, it generates zero lift. <laughs> That's when it turns. And you can watch a boomerang. And when it reaches that point, you can see the bottom part of it. And it's literally, it's standing still in the air. And that's the maximum turn, and then it comes back and flattens out as it comes back to you. Yeah. All right. So, why does a wing do that is the question. If you have two wings on a plane and you're flying straight, you have a curvy part that's on the top and a flat part that's the bottom of the wing. Why does that make the plane go up? Uh, Well, if you read textbooks, what they say is that the wind rushing over the surface of the wing creates low pressure. And the faster the air is going, the lower the pressure. And since air has to, from the starting point to the ending point, the air just on the bottom side of the wing has to go a couple of feet. But air on the top of the wing has to go up and down. It has to travel further to get past the wing. So it has to go faster. So it creates low pressure on the back top side of the wing. And that's what lifts the plane up. Is that true? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> don't know what to well, say that that is that is what everybody learns okay i disagree uh, well i know that the, what i'm about to say has the same force magnitude so it's the same thing but we know newton's law for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction if the plane is going up something must be going down and if you look at air flowing past a wing. At the backside of the wing, there's a huge poof of air that's shot downwards. It's the acceleration of the air downward. It's the force that lifts the plane up. The reaction is to rise as it's forcing air down. That's really what's happening. And yet, most textbooks say it's low pressure is lifting the plane. No, it's the air. The wing's actually forcing air downwards. Now, I'm sure that the... Um, Aeronautical engineers, because we have thousands of them listen to our show, they're probably turning over right now in their graves even. Yes. And probably shouting at us over the airwaves. But that is my explanation of the history of flight and how a wing works. You don't need a curvy wing. You can have a flat wing. You can have a, a, a wing that's shaped the same on both sides if you want to fly upside down. But to go efficiently, you really want a curvy wing and you want to have a decent angle of attack etc etc fantastic that was really interesting cool thanks i have a few questions for you after we sign off after the outro all right so thanks everybody for joining us on this quest if you found this episode interesting in any way consider sharing it with your family and friends you can also get Equinox Plus, which includes bonus episodes if you want to hear more from us. That's available through our Patreon. The link to that is in the show notes. And just uh, support us with a dollar or $5 a month, and you get a new feed that's for Equinox Plus, which gives you the regular episodes plus the bonus material. More information from the link. This episode's link and show notes are available in most podcast players with the show, but you can also find them at nightowl.fm equinox 55. 
And you should also check out Biblical Genetics, which is Rob's other project. Biblical Genetics is also available on Facebook and YouTube, where you can watch the videos and join the discussions in the comments. And if you want to catch me, I'm at JCS Darnell on Twitter, or take a listen to my other podcast, Hi-Fi, which is available at nightowl.fm slash hi-fi. Until next time, goodbye, Rob. Goodbye, Joe. You've been listening to Equinox. So I've been wondering. Yeah. I think I solved, I answered the first question for myself. I was going to ask you if an elevator was flying. And then it occurred to me that it's actually being pulled up by a pulley. So that's not what it's doing. Or pushed up by a piston. Okay. Then I thought, uh, well, we were talking about boomerangs. We understand that those um, were not invented Twenty-five to 50,000 years ago. Of course not. But then it made me think about Frisbees and flying discs. That was invented by Fred Frisbee. <laughs> <laughs> Honest to God, that it actually could be a true story. Are you pulling my leg? <laughs> I'm assuming that's not true. Well, I'm not. I'm not. Okay. So I, when I looked it up, I looked up when were flying discs invented. I got the answer. This is what it says. That flying disc w- uh, was Morrison's invention, first sold by Whammo Toy Company. Uh, January 23rd in 1957 as the Pluto Platter. <laughs> Pluto Platter. 57, that late. Wow. Then uh, Wemo changed okay. the name to the, fo- the following year as a misspelled homage to the popular New England pastime of tossing around pie tins from Connecticut's Frisbee Pie Company. So I did not realize that because one of my favorite films, Back to the Future, part three. Yeah. There's a point you, where the one with, Marty the one that is, went out west. That's the cowboy. Yes. One? And Marty g- quickly reaches over and grabs the pie pan and throws it. And it hits Buford Tannen's gun so that he doesn't shoot yeah. Doc in the head. Yeah. We could totally see you doing that role, by the way. <laughs> I'm a big Frisbee player, by the way. This is really kind of cool. Learn this history. So there's no Fred Frisbee or was it Fred Frisbee's pie company? Fred Morrison was actually the guy's name. So the guy who invented oh, it, man. he was Fred Morrison. All right. So I just learned something. I cannot say Fred Frisbee. He probably wouldn't like to call it GIF either. <laughs> the army looked at Frisbees as a weapon. Oh, what? Because they can fly really far. Oh, yeah. You can throw a Frisbee a lot farther than you can throw a hand grenade. But they gave up when they figured out that in order to throw a frisbee you have to expose yourself to enemy fire and it takes practice to be able to throw a frisbee really well i used to be able to do i'm an old man i can't do it anymore but i used to have a pretty good arm and hand grenades you can you know you don't have to expose yourself at all you just throw it over the wall so no frisbees in the army sadly so uh, look at this web page if you if you happen to be at your computer or your web browser join rob and uh, check this out because it's cool the web address is A-E-R-O-B-I-E dot com. So that spells Aerobee.
A-E-R-O-B-I-E.com. So, yes, I, I used to be a big aerobie thrower. I've talked with the guy who invented these. <gasps> you did? Small world kind of thing. This guy invented the aerobie flying discs. That was a very successful business for a good long time, if I remember right. Longest aerobie throw was 1,000 feet, 11 inches by 24-year-old Scott Zimmerman in 1985. The reason I talked to him was because Aerobee's inventor ended up also inventing something totally different. Do you want to take a wild guess what it was? What in my past, why would I have talked to the inventor of Aerobee? No. He invented a coffee press, the Aeropress. Okay. So he came up with the idea while working at his flying discs business. They were talking about brewing coffee in the kitchen and how impractical and, you know, how uh, sort of uh, clumsy and random a regular coffee drip electric maker was. And they, there ought to be a better device than this. So he spent a couple of, you know, years inventing the perfect coffee press and it was called the Aeropress. It's actually super popular and renowned around the world now. The chefs love it. Coffee connoisseurs love it. I have one. It's really good. It's, it makes an incredible single-serving coffee. And the same guy who made Aerobee Flying Discs invented the Aeropress. Cool. So I had him on my podcast about coffee several years ago. That, that's yeah. awesome because like, he's like a local hero. My, this, is, this is my high school years. Summer camp and beach. I mean, we, we threw that Aerobee a lot. I actually didn't start really throwing a Frisbee until college. I was one of those really? college Frisbee nerds, you know. You know, we ought to get a group together and go over there and use the, the Frisbee golf park that's not far from the office. We really ought to do that. Yeah, let's go, man. I got, I got a whole set of discs. You do? Brilliant. Yeah, yeah we should do In it. In fact, I've got get- more than... Because I try to go with my kids and they're like, I hate this, Dad. I don't want to go home now. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm in the mood now. I meant to get a kite, you know, but kite season's kind of come and gone. I'm Georgia is the worst place for kites. Is it? See, I don't have any other experience. Well, we're in the horse latitudes. We don't have steady wind. That totally explains why my kite doesn't work. We get lucky some days, but, you know, maybe have a kite day at Stone Mountain every year. But I've had no luck with kites basically the whole time I've lived in Georgia. And yet as a kid, we go down to the ocean, we we'd set a kite up, and it would literally be up there all day. And we'd like hang little seaweed things on the string and would go up. One time my sister and I would took a kite and we put two strings on it. Like ran it out, tied a string to it and ran that out. And it was like way, this tiny little thing. It was way up in the air and it was up there for hours. And then a string broke. <laughs> and I have no idea where that kite went, but we never saw it again. But you can't do that in Georgia. I've never successfully been able to do it. Anyway. All right. Well, good night, everybody.